For these next two weeks, I want us to look at this key verse. If you don't uh, hear next Sunday, you will not get the full picture. Please come back next uh, week. The things that we will share together are important for all of us. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. All of Paul's letters have a particular context. When he writes to the Galatians, he's hopping mad. And he writes a letter hurriedly and angrily to tell them to get themselves sorted. He's angry because false teachers have been coming and leading the young Christians away. When he writes to the, letter to the church in Rome, he is, he's got no axe to grind. It's a very different context. It's much slower, it's thoughtful, it's systematic, it's carefully worked out. And for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans... Paul is very carefully and thoughtfully setting out what he understands to be the truth of the gospel. And uh, this verse, verse 16 of the very first chapter, is rightly understood by so many to be the summary of all that Paul is saying to us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The first thing then to note is that it's the power of God. Who doesn't want more of God's power at work in their lives? Who doesn't want more of God's power at work in this, his church? Who doesn't want to see more of God's power at work in the world? If these things are of no interest, then by all means take a snooze. But if you long for more of God's power in your life and in our church and in his world, then stick with me for a while. Because Paul here shows where we might find that power. Where do we go? Into which socket of belief do we have to plug our lives in order that the electrifying power of God's Spirit might flow? Well, here it is. The power of God is found in the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. Understand the strength of these words. Paul is writing to Rome. Rome knew all about power. They had completely conquered the known world. The whole atmosphere of the grandeur of Rome was a boast, a celebration of their power, of their achievements, of the way they were in charge over the whole of the world. Yet to these people, Paul writes... And Paul says, you know, you're boasting in something. Well, I want to boast too. The phrase, I'm not ashamed, is a figure of speech. Shall I tote to suggest strongly the opposite? As your city boasts in its power, Paul writes, I want to boast in another, even greater power. Not the power of Rome, but the power of God. And what might those who read this letter for the very first time, have expected Paul to go on to say, to illustrate why he was able to boast in God's power that was even greater than the might of Rome. What illustration would you give in order to justify to Rome at that time that your God was more powerful than their might? I guess the obvious example we might turn to is that of creation. We'd point to the vastness of a star-filled sky. We'd uh, point to the awesome height of a mountain peak or to the power of the ocean waves and say, that's the power of our God. And so we might say to Rome, while you boast in your power 
of conquering all this, we boast in the power of our God who created all this. And yet Paul doesn't. He turns to something else. He turns to something that for him is even more powerful and even better illustration of the power of God than creation itself. He turns to the gospel, the incredible power of the gospel. The gospel for Paul is where God's power is really, truly made known. I'm coming to Rome, he says, to boast in a power that is even greater than yours. It's the power of God seen in the gospel. If we want to be powerful Christians, we must be gospel Christians. If we want to be a power-filled church, the gospel of Christ must be at the heart of this community. And if we want to reach the lost, to touch our neighbours, to transform our community, we must be gospel people to do so. So what is this gospel? What does gospel mean? Gospel simply means good news. But whose good news is it? And for whom? Well, we don't have to look very far. In Paul's letters, so often he uses the phrase, the gospel of Christ. So anyone who was familiar with Paul's writings would know that that's what he meant. But even if you'd never read anything before, Paul wants to make absolutely certain. So when he begins this letter, those verses that Dave kindly read to us, they begin by describing exactly what he understands by the gospel. Verse 1 of Romans 1. I hope you have your Bible still open in front of you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. The gospel regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel I want to tell you about. Paul doesn't hide it up front, right from the beginning. It's the gospel regarding his Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord. So firstly, the gospel is the power of God, but secondly, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Mark begins his book in exactly the same way, the beginning of the gospel. What is it? It's the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul is saying that the power of God is the good news about Jesus But why? Why is Jesus good news? And where is its power? Well, we have in the Bible four books that call themselves Gospels. They call themselves good news books. And they tell the story, each of them, in their different ways, the life of Jesus. And they say, this is the good news about Jesus. Good news books. We call them Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you start reading them, you can begin to understand why Jesus was good news. If you were blind and Jesus came to your town, you may well be healed. That's good news. If you were at a wedding and the wine had run out, Jesus would give you more. That's good news if you're at a wedding and the wine has run out. If you were uh, on a hillside and everyone was hungry and Jesus was about to prepare a feast, that would be good news because everybody would be fed. It was good news in the Gospels for those on a stormy lake. It was good news for the man that was lame. It was good news for the widow who had lost her son, for the sisters who'd lost their brother, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
Is that the good news the gospel writers were telling us about? No. No. However good that good news was, there was something much more they were trying to say. This is clear by the fact that in all four of the Gospels, in in all four of those good news books, the nearest thing we have to a biography of Jesus, they spend much more time talking about his death than they do talking about his life. However good his life was, they wanted to talk about his death, and still they wanted to say, this is good news. Not only is the, mo- is the amount of time spent in the Gospels talking about Jesus' death disproportionate to his life, they even start talking about his death as soon as they start the beginning of their stories. In the Christmas story, they're already talking about Easter. Matthew has wise men coming to Jesus with anointment ready for Jesus' burial. Mark, in his second chapter, talks about the time when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Luke, in his gospel, reminds us that when Jesus came for the dedication, the infant dedication presentation at the temple, that Simeon prophesied to Mary and said, you know, a sword is going to pierce right through your heart. Thinking forward to the way Jesus would die. And then in John's gospel, it's still only chapter 1, and and John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Now these were Old Testament people, and they knew the only way lambs took away sin was when they were killed. Right at the beginning of the story, they're already thinking about his death, and yet they say it's good news. How could his death possibly be good news? How could any crucifixion, the cruelest death of all, ever be good news, even if it was the just reward for a very evil man? And yet they are so preoccupied with it. It's not as if there wasn't much in his life to write about. John, at the end of his gospel, says, there's so much more I could have written about Jesus' life. Pages of the stuff, but I've just written you these things that you might believe. These early disciples clearly understood that the goodness of Jesus healing the blind man, or even raising a widow's son, was to be utterly dwarfed by the goodness of his death. Why? Why? You see, on the surface of it, it was a tragedy, wasn't it? Jesus was brutally killed, a campaign of hate that snowballed to an horrendous conclusion. Fueled by greed and envy, Judas Iscariot, the priests, Pilate, the soldiers, all played their part. These are the facts. With collective responsibility, these people killed Jesus. Yet the Gospels tell of another story. Simultaneously, At the same time, they weave another story into the picture that although his death was brought about by human wickedness, there is this other story that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, even deliberately. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And then there are those other occasions in the Gospels where Jesus is trying to explain to his followers that his death will happen and that it was absolutely necessary. 
And how in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus kept his face towards Jerusalem because no true prophet of God should die outside God's holy city. So there are these two ideas that are running simultaneously through the gospel. On a human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on another level, a divine level, the father gives up the son. The son willingly, voluntarily lays down his life. And Peter, in the very first sermon, right after Pentecost, the beginning of the story of the church, he brings these two things together. This man, and he's talking about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God knew what he was doing. It was God's plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. The death of Jesus was at the same time the plan of God and the act of wicked men. Octavius Winslow, what a name, hey? Octavius Winslow. Who delivered up Jesus to die, he said? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And how Jesus himself approached his own death is really perplexing and intriguing. You see, the last evening that Jesus spent with his disciples, he seems well aware about what was going to happen the next day. Imagine it. Having lived barely half your allotted lifespan, the prospect of imminent death, the most cruel death of all, how would you behave? But Jesus' attitude seems so starkly different. For him, his death was not a rude interruption to a successful ministry, but the very climax of that ministry itself. John Stott writes quite helpfully, I think. He puts it like this. Although it was Jesus' last evening, and although he had but a few more hours to live, Jesus was not looking back at a mission he had completed, still less that he had failed. He was still looking forward to a mission which he was about to fulfill. The mission of a lifetime of 30 to 35 years was to be accomplished in its last 24 hours. Indeed, its last six. We can only assume that the writers attach so much significance to the death of Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus did himself. But still the question, why? Why was it good and for whom? We must look closer still. Zoom in with me to the last night that Jesus had with his disciples. You know, a bit like Google Earth. You know, and in you go. And see what's happening. Come and sit round the table where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. It'd been one heck of an evening. They'd been well embarrassed because they didn't wash his feet. Then they were all whispering as to who the betrayer was going to be. Then they ate the Passover. Everyone's eyes fastened on Jesus. And he took the loaf of bread. And he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Then it says that after they'd eaten, he took the cup. And he said, this cup that we're all going to share in, we're all going to drink from. This cup is now the new covenant in my blood, shared for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he sets before his disciples instructions for his own memorial service. A memorial to be enacted many times over. He says, do this as often to remember me. A memorial what of his life? No, a memorial of his death. Broken body 
given for you. Wine, my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. The evidence, writes John Stott again, is plain and irrefutable. The Lord's Supper, which was instituted by Jesus and which is the only regular commemorative act authorised by him, dramatises neither his birth nor his life, neither his words nor his works, but only his death. Nothing could indicate more clearly the central significance to his death. It was by his death that he wished above all else to be remembered. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. The cross is not central to our religion. Ours is not the religion of Jesus. But still, why? But he's making it plain, don't you see? This is my body broken for you. This is the blood, my blood, shed, who for? For you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And remember the context, it's the Passover meal. You see, we non-Jewish people don't get it like they got it. It was Passover supper time, a celebration of when God achieved a tremendous act of deliverance for his people. He was speaking about being a sacrificial offering. These guys were so familiar with what offerings meant of how the blood of a lamb or a goat could get rid of sin and guilt. And somehow Jesus is beginning to say, this is a new covenant. It's like the old one, but it's not the old, it's new. It's not in a lamb or a goat, but now it's in my blood. It's a deliverance now, not from Egypt, but from the power and the guilt of sin. And in that simple act, lost on us Westerners, but very profound to those steeped in the Old Testament, Jesus, in this simple meal, gave the acts of the next day absolutely monumental significance. The deliverance from sin by the atoning blood. Whose blood? His blood. Whose body? His his body broken on the cross for you and me. And then they're, they're stunned, I suspect. They've hardly grasped what he said. It's so profound. It only takes a few sentences, but it so radically changed the way they understood Jesus' mission. And whilst they're just getting their heads around it, Jesus says, right, we're off. And they're up. They slip through the city into the night and they go up the hillside to a garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says there, Jesus is in such turmoil about what's going to happen. He begins to sweat even drops of blood. And he says, Father... Father, if it's possible, take this cup. Old Testament language for the wrath of God towards sin. Take this cup from me, but at the end, not your will, but mine. And again, we realize that what Jesus is about to face is no ordinary crucifixion. How terrible that might be. Much more, Jesus was to carry the sin of the world upon himself. He was to take the judgment, the punishment, the pain, the consequence of the sins of the world on himself so that we would read, he who had no sin became sin for us. He, though completely innocent, would suffer the judgment of the sins of the world upon himself. That was the dread, the agony of Gethsemane, the pain of the cross bad enough but would be totally eclipsed by the agonizing torment of the sin of the world invading his soul. Isn't that why it went dark over the whole land? Between the sixth and the ninth hour, 
Is that not why he cried out that cry of abandonment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because is not the judgment for sin separation from God? And as that sin filled Jesus' being, he was cut off for the first and only time in the whole of eternity from his Father in heaven. And he cried with great anguish. And only once the sin had been carried and the full consequence of it experienced in Jesus did he cry, it is finished. And then with his mission complete, he bowed his head and died. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ dealing, dealing with sin. In other words, the most fundamental problem with the human race has been dealt with. The most powerful force in our world has been overcome. You see, there is nothing that has rendered humanity more powerless than sin. How easily we forget that sin is a terminal illness an aggressive, out-of-control, malignant cancer affecting the human heart that has affected the whole of creation too. Sin has brought destruction upon us. Think about it with me for a moment. Sin has made us dead on the inside. As for you, what were you? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin has separated us from God. How awful is that? But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. And then the worst thing, As if those things aren't bad enough, the Bible says sin has caused a complete and utter death. The wages of sin is death. In such contrast to the gift of eternal life, there is an eternal death, the consequence of living without God. But, but through the death of Christ, which is meaningless, of course, without the resurrection, through the death of Christ, from which he rose victorious. Sin has been conquered, its power has been defeated, its guilt forgiven. So instead of being dead on the inside, I can be made alive on the inside. Because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy has made us alive. Instead of being separated from God, I can be brought back to God. Instead of God being far away, he can be near, I can be near him. Christ died for sins once for all. Why did he die? Bring you back to God. Thirdly, instead of that eternal death, I can receive eternal life because of his death. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And one day I'm going to get really excited about all of that. Whew, hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is the greatest power at work in our world. Not creating something in you only for a while that will die again. This is something that will last forever. Hallelujah. This is the heart of the gospel that the death of Christ from which he rose victorious has dealt with the fundamental problem, the malignant cancer of the human heart that has affected every member of the human race except Jesus Christ. The gospel then is the power of God. And the gospel then, secondly, is the good news of Jesus Christ dealing with sin. And then thirdly and finally, the gospel is for everyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And of course it's for everyone. It must be. 
If the death of Christ is the antidote to the venom of sin, the cure for the malignant cancer, then it's for all of us, isn't it? Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, for we're all in the same mess. We're all trapped and powerless. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. This disease has got us all under its spell. Every single person. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're Welsh or English. It doesn't matter whether you are a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a secularist, a humanist, an atheist, an agnostic, any other istic you can possibly think of. All of us are trapped by this desperate cancerous disease that the Bible calls sin. And if untreated, what happens? People are kept dead on the inside. People are still separated from God and people face an eternal death. We are all trapped by this and therefore everybody needs a saviour. Black, white, rich, poor, Western European, Eastern European, Asian, African, American, Everyone faces this problem. Simon, are you saying the people of other religions still need a saviour? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because if they don't have a saviour, who or what will resolve for them the sin problem? And if the sin problem isn't resolved, then they are dead on the inside and they are separated from God and they face an eternal death. If you agree with me that the reason Jesus came was because his death was necessary to resolve the problem of sin. You cannot at the same time say that there are other ways to sort it out, that there are other ways to God. Can you? If there are other ways to sort out this sin problem, if there are other ways to get to God, tell me, why on earth did Jesus die? Why on earth? And Evan agrees with me. It's absolutely right. Young theologian. He died precisely because there was no other way. His death, a fulfillment of the Old Testament with the sacrifices and the rituals and the ceremonies week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, was shown to be not enough but pointed ahead to the way, the day when there would be a true sacrifice once and for all. And the Old Testament longed for it. They knew only a shadow, but the real thing was coming. He died because all of our human striving, religious or secular, can never, ever reach God. Which is exactly the point of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's really overwhelmed by what's about to happen the next day. And he says, Father God, I don't know if I can do it. What is about to happen to me tomorrow is so utterly horrendous, I'm not sure I can do it. Father, if there be another way, please, 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 can we do it another way? What does Father God say? There's no other way. Is that true? There's no other way. And Jesus said, okay. Okay, I'm in. If there's no other way, I'm in. You see, if there are other ways to God, then the death of Jesus was completely pointless. And we worship a man who was nothing more than a self-martyr, needlessly and recklessly making an exhibition of himself in his death. Friends, that makes no sense to me. You cannot be a Christian and accept there are other ways to God. It makes no sense. Unless you say Jesus' death is something different from what the Bible gives testimony to. 
In which case, I guess we wouldn't really be Christians at all. This is why the whole interfaith thing is so fatally flawed. If he died for the sins of the world, it's for everybody. If he didn't die for the sins of the world, we're still all in the same right old mess. The only way to have a Christian faith, as I can understand it, that makes room for others to make their own way to God, is to get rid of the very centre of Christianity, to get rid of the cross. In which case, you're not left with Christianity at all. And when that happens, the church loses its power. Why? Because the power of God is in the gospel of Christ. And if there was no death of Christ and glorious resurrection, there is no gospel of Christ. And if there is no gospel of Christ, there is no power of God. So Paul says, you know, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed before the pagan powers of Rome. And I'm not ashamed before the many gods of Antioch. And I'm not ashamed before the religious legalism of the Pharisees of which I was one. I'm not ashamed anymore. Because this is the gospel everybody needs. It is the true power of God. The only means of salvation. Because read this with me. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Political correctness is the greatest persecution we are facing as a church in recent times. When we bow to its demands, the gospel is ripped of its guts and Christianity loses its power because it's lost its true character. Today is the day to be people who are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, who will declare its supreme power to the contemporary powers of our day, be they religious, secularist, modernist, humanist, declaring to people of faith and of no faith. You see, as the majestic city of Rome boasted in all its power, Paul pointed to a greater power. Now, who was right? If you go to Rome today, what do you see? Ruins. Ruins. Where, has that, where is that power now? It's gone. But the power of the gospel marches on. And as you look at the great powers of our day, what will become of them? Where will they be? What will happen? Nothing. They will be swept away as history marches on. Second half of the last century was epitomized by the power of technology. We can do anything. Technology will take us to a new utopia. We can even put men on the moon. Where is that confidence now? As the 20th century drew to a close, from the horrendous news that came to us through the early years of the 21st century, so the realization dawned that for all our advances in technology, the sickness of the human heart was still unresolved. So with that, our faith in the all-embracing power of technology began to wane. I'm here today to tell you this. Our hope lies not in the man we put on the moon, but in the man we put on the cross. But in the man we put on the cross. And so as all the powers of our day strut their stuff on this global stage, may we boast in the true power of God, found in the gospel of his son Jesus Christ. When truth dies, bad things happen. Truth of the gospel has died in the world around us. And sometimes in the church it's been allowed to be reduced to just a flicker. It's time to fan the flames. To fan the flames of truth once more.
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the salvation of everyone who believes. If this be true, may God wing it to our hearts and make a difference in the way we live this coming week. Amen. Claire.